Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing, using only reclaimed, vintage, or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans in Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal ways to put maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. No Flight Back Vintage bringing fun, new life to old things, always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at noflightbackvintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple, hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. And Late to the Party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold of floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room, all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that thinks we should totally bring back layaway. I mean, I can't think of Christmas without thinking of going to Hills with my grandma to either pay on her layaway or pick it up. Hopefully some of you have those memories too. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda. Guess what? We're finally going to finish LuLaRoe. I know a lot of you are fascinated by MLMs, so I wanted to shout out a few more ways to immerse yourself in the world of pyramid schemes. First is a show recommended by listener and patron Elena. It's called I'm Becoming a God in Central Florida, and it stars Kirsten Dunst and Beth Ditto, among tons of other incredible actors that you're going to recognize from other things. And it takes place in the early 90s in Florida. It's a dark comedy, and I mean really dark. (laughs) And it's about an Amway-like pyramid scheme, and I do mean like this is 100% a pyramid scheme. The costumes are amazing, and it's really funny, especially if you're into that like baskets-style dark humor. Dustin and I were laughing our asses off at episode two because there were two separate huge cookie cakes that make an appearance, and I just think those huge cookie cakes are hilarious. It's a Showtime show, which means it's not necessarily free, but here's a pro tip here. Amazon is offering a free week of Showtime as a trial, which I plan on canceling as soon as I finish the series. So there's a thrifty little trick for you to watch it (laughs) or get someone to give you their Showtime password. Also, there's a podcast that I love called The Dream. 
and it's actually about MLMs and their impacts on women, I think that that's a really important part of the story, how it impacts women and their relationships. It's totally a good listen. So check that out too. And I'll include links to both of these in the show notes. And if you have any other MLM programming to share, please drop me a message because I know we all want to hear about it. Okay. Can I just say that we have a lot to do in this episode? (laughs) First, it's time to shout out the newest Patreon supporters. So first we have Rachel Healy. And I think this is a good time to tell you that I usually try to track down some info about each patron. And yes, I'm aware that that's kind of creepy, but I mean, I mean it in a loving way. (laughs) Anyway, Rachel, I couldn't find any details about you. You're an enigma. But thank you so much for supporting Clothes Horse, and it means so much to me. Next is Shop Journal, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite internet friends and small brands. Laura, the owner, designer, and maker, shares my love of Little House on the Prairie and memes about Four Seasons Total Landscaping, so you know she's rad. I'm so honored to have her as a patron. Please check out her site, shopjournalvintage.com, so you can see all of her awesome mask, collar, kerchief sets. Like, I'm really leaning into masks as something that is going to be around for a while, so why not turn it into a look? I'm really into, like, a head-to-toe look. I mean, I always match my mask to my outfit in the best way I can. And if I had my way in this fantasy world, every dress I owned would have a matching mask. I mean, it's just such a good look, and it's super safe. So... Check out Shop Journal for some good options. This is not a paid commercial, by the way. That's just love. I just love her sets. <laughs> if you would like to support the show and me via Patreon, you can find more information at patreon.com slash podcast. I'll also share a link in the show notes. And you know what? If you can't become a patron, you know what? That's totally fine, too. Listen. Times are hard for all of us, and I'm just glad to have you here as a listener. Knowing that you're out there giving me your time every week, that keeps me motivated and it gets me excited about researching and learning new things. So thank you. Okay, moving along, because like I said, we have a lot to do. I have a really great listener letter here from Katie. Hi there. Hope you are well. My friend Becky, who coincidentally owns Shift in Astoria, Oregon, who is one of our sponsors, got me hooked on your show. Well, thank you, Becky. While I'm somebody who was raised thrifting and mending clothes and greatly enjoy doing both, your show has caused me to reevaluate some thoughtless clothing-related decisions I was making. Hey, guess what? Me too. So this might be a long email, and I hope you can bear with me. I had a baby a year ago. When I was pregnant, I just couldn't even allow myself to contemplate climate change or the ramifications of bringing another person into the world, or I would have a meltdown and I was keeping the baby. So what did I stand to gain by indulging existential angst? I hear you on that one. I've tried to take some measures to dull the guilt. We've tried to limit new plastic toys. We contemplated cloth diapers, but gave up after the first week. Sorry. For the baby shower, we asked people to shop secondhand or pass down old baby clothes and toys that they were ready to get rid of rather than buying us anything new. Of course, not everyone followed this, but for the most part, we've managed to keep our daughter clothed in primarily thrifted or hand-me-down outfits. So there are a couple of things. With the pandemic, I noticed a major dip in stock at our local thrift stores, and so it's been harder to find used baby clothes, 
especially weather appropriate as we start to get into colder, rainier months. I decided to go ahead and order some things new, but what are even sustainable options? I found rough lists of certain brands the writers claimed were sustainable, but I'm not always clear on what that means. And to be honest, I haven't done a deep dive. There are all these heirloom high-end online stores with baby clothes and colors like Mushroom or Falcon, and these babies are always frolicking in sapia-tinted dune grass fields with a mother who is wearing clogs. Can you hear my eyes roll a bit? I'm petty about this because I'm jealous. But while I might be able to justify spending a bit more on sustainable, high-quality pants or dress for me, it's harder to figure out how to make that call for a baby who is going to outgrow any garment I buy her in maybe three months, a process that will continue for years. It's hard to stomach paying, say, $45 or even $95 for a single onesie, for example. Also, it's unjustifiable with my bank account. Also, it feels like a weird kind of Instagram parent vanity to deck out my kid in this expensive pseudo-adult turn-of-the-century garb. Shit is cute, though. Anyway, mainstream baby brands like Carter's, readily available on the coast where I live and often what you find in our thrift stores, are terrible, though. Terrible on many levels, I would assume. There are a couple items that my daughter maybe only wore for a short time or when she was less mobile, maybe passed down from only one other kid or even brand new, and yet they look like five feral children have lived their lives in them. It makes me think of t-shirts you buy at Ross or TJ Maxx that end up in your dresser unworn but still manage to pill. There's also all those parent and kid matching outfits out there, which I'm judging, seem to exist just for back-in-the-day family pictures and now Instagram. I don't know if it's too far afield from what you envision for Clothes Horse, but I'd be super interested in an episode about the impacts of kids' clothes in this world and how parents can make better choices. Thanks for reading all of this, Katie. Okay, so I'm reading Katie's letter to you right now for multiple reasons. One, because it made me laugh. Two, is that I think we tend to forget about kids' clothes because they're just as problematic as adult clothes, if not more. We'll go into that. And three, the options in kids' clothes, as Katie pointed out in her letter, are a lot more difficult, especially right now. So kids' clothes, for the most part, are also part of the fast fashion machine. If anything, I would say that kids' clothes are almost more problematic because retailers tend to approach them from a head-to-toe perspective. They want customers to buy the entire outfit, so not just the clothes, but the headbands, the little purse, the socks, the shoes the sunglasses, the leggings, all of that. I mean, I actually have a photo of Dylan in a head-to-toe outfit. She looks like Jackie O. It's so adorable. It was a whole head-to-toe look, including sunglasses, that a friend's mom bought her from Gymboree, easily well more than $100 worth of clothing. Gosh, probably like $200. She wore it twice and outgrew it. Gymboree has always been a big purveyor of that concept, and I even had a boss at Nasty Gal who came from Gymboree, and she was also trying to get us to buy into a head-to-toe look for the customer. And I'm not sure if it really works as well for adults, but for kids, it's like an easy gift, and you know it's pretty cute. You know, the photos are great, right? But on the other hand, it doesn't allow for a lot of versatility because most of the stuff has to be worn together, so it barely gets worn, right, before they outgrow it. I also just want to add that a lot of these clothes are fast fashion in terms of quality and fabrics, as Katie pointed out. They get pilly right away. It's insane how fast they get pilly, actually. I feel like faster than adult clothes, especially when you think about how little they're worn, they get discolored really fast. I don't, 
I don't know what's going on there, but I would, I would guess that the quality of children's clothing is even lower than the quality of adult fast fashion because the retailers and manufacturers are sort of hedging their bets that it's not going to be worn for very long. So you won't notice that it's low quality. Also, just wanted to add in, much as we're saying that children's clothing is essentially fast fashion as well, that means there's a lot of greenwashing going on there, just like with adult fast fashion. So organic cotton seems to be the big agenda that's being pushed in children's clothing. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about organic cotton. On one hand, it uses less pesticides. On the other hand, it uses like literally twice as much water. And as I try to remind myself and everyone around me all the time, the fabric isn't the only thing that's problematic about fast fashion. There's no fabric out there that makes it okay to buy tons and tons of clothing because I really doubt that the workers are being paid a sustainable wage. Organic cotton doesn't mean sustainable. I guess that's as as succinctly as I can say it. So also, there's a lot more safety rules about kids' clothing. They can't have a lot of loose baubles, and they definitely can't have drawstrings. In fact, in the rare occasion that you see something resembling a drawstring on a child's hoodie or sweatpants, it's purely decorative, which is also ridiculous. And that's because a real functional drawstring could be dangerous. Basically, kids' clothing manufacturers are so terrified of a lawsuit that the policies and practices around safety in kids' clothes become more and more restrictive over time. Another big deal in the world of children's clothing is flammability, specifically in sleepwear. Even today, all children's pajamas up to size 14 must be either flame resistant or fit snugly. So where did that come from? Well, in the 1940s, children's clothing was often made of rayon fabric, which would easily ignite and just burn up like in a second. And that's also really terrifying. Similar thing with adult clothing, actually. In 1953, the government passed the Flammable Fabrics Act, which required children's pajamas and a number of other items that children would be around, like mattresses, to be made from flame-resistant fabric. Many people believe that actually, and this is really interesting to me, the tobacco industry was behind all of this because they wanted clothing and furniture manufacturers to be blamed for fires rather than cigarettes. I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about flame retardants for a moment. Flame retardant chemicals that contain bromine or organophosphate are very concerning because both of these chemicals can hinder neurological development in children. Chlorinated tris or TDCPP is known to cause cancer and this flame retardant was banned for use in children's pajamas in 1977, but just wanna say this, it does continue to be added to polyurethane foam in furniture and baby products. This substance has also been linked to lower sperm counts for men and altered hormone levels in all people. Phosphorus flame retardants, also known as PFRs, have been linked to the development of allergies and asthma when they occur in indoor dust. And studies have also linked flame retardants to thyroid and endocrine disruption and problems with fetal developments, like such bad news. Simple blood and urine tests reveal that we carry many of these retardants with us all the time. They can even be found in breast milk. So 
totally terrifying, right? I, I've, you know, had thyroid issues since I was a kid and I'm like, is it because of all those footy pajamas I was wearing? I mean, I'm totally serious. Now, you can buy pajamas without flame retardants, specifically the tight-fitting 100% cotton sets. I know you've seen them if you have kids or have been around kids. But you really want to read the labels here. Pajamas that are free of flame retardants will actually have a menacing warning about how they may catch on fire. And guess what? They probably won't. There's enough to worry about with your children without this nonsense. You can kind of tell the flame retardant fabrics by hand feel, like you know them when you see them. A lot of little girls' nightgowns are made of it. It's like a weird fabric that almost catches on your hands. Flame retardant does wear off with washes, and so that might be another argument for buying secondhand clothes. So once again, there are all these rules around the flammability of sleepwear, but strangely, not around the rest of children's clothing. It's very odd to me, especially since, you know, small children take naps and stuff and they aren't always sleeping in pajamas for that. But it forces children's clothing makers to really drive the point home that the regular clothing is not sleepwear by adding a lot of embellishment so that it's clearly not for sleeping. It's super silly, I know. And when you really think about it, it leads to a lot more microplastics in the world with all the glitter and whatnot. Also, they can ensure that these clothes are day wear. It's like so silly because once again, kids sleep in cars, in strollers, on living room floors. Basically, all of their clothing could be sleepwear. So kids' clothes are a big business, just as big as adult fast fashion. In fact, it's no surprise to me that even Forever 21 has a kid's section. But kids' clothes are complicated because when children are really small, they grow fast. Therefore, the clothes are barely worn. Kind of going back to this idea that my guess is that retailers and makers are hedging their bets that these clothes aren't going to be worn for very long, so the quality isn't as important. And even as kids get older, they still outgrow their stuff. It just might take a little bit longer. And I don't know about you, but when I was, I was like a disaster child when it came to clothing, I was constantly falling down and ripping out the knees of my pants, tights, whatever. If there was ketchup anywhere within like a five mile radius, somehow it was on my clothes. I think I still have a phobia about eating ketchup in public because of that. I rolled in the grass. I fell off my bike. I mean, I ruined a lot of clothes, much to my mother's frustration. So as Katie touches on, this idea of investment pieces makes no sense for children. I think kids' clothes are all about secondhand, ideally hand-me-downs from friends and family. I mean, that's how it once functioned. But somewhere along the line, retailers realized that selling us an endless stream of children's clothing was also just such a cash cow. And children also began to be used as sort of like a stylistic extension of their parents. So the kids had to be trendy too. That meant that used children's clothing was sort of stigmatized. And even if you personally want to lead a more sustainable life and you want to find hand-me-downs within your friends and family, it can be hard. When my daughter was little, I was the only person I knew with a kid no one in my family had small children either, so I had to look outside of my friends and family to find clothes, which usually meant thrift stores, yard sales, consignment shops, and lots of Old Navy clearance sales, which, I mean, there's a company that is making a killing off of selling children's clothing. 
I didn't have the kind of money for $40 onesies. And honestly, that seems so ridiculous to me even now. It only makes sense if you're planning to have like five kids to wear that onesie over time. I would love to hear from you listeners, any ideas you have for adapting the idea of hand-me-downs to this time period, to the pandemic, to modern times where people live far apart. What do you do? How do you more sustainably dress your kids without buying crazily expensive baby clothes? My friend Mary has found eBay to be a good resource and she's super frugal like me. So that means something to me. Please send me your suggestions for Katie and everyone else with kids. Like, where do you find secondhand clothes? How do you dress your kids sustainably and affordably? And if you have worked in the children's clothing industry and or school uniforms, please, please reach out to me. I have so many questions for you. You can reach out via DM on Instagram or send me an email at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or call the Clothes Horse hotline at 717-925-7417. And speaking of the Clothes Horse hotline, I hear it ringing and it's our friend Danny of Picnic Wear. Hi, Amanda. It's Danny calling. Um, gosh, if you air this online, your viewers are going to be sick of hearing about me or from me. But I had to call you because I thought of DMing you, but then I was like, you know what? I'm going to call this hotline because I never thought I'd have a reason to. But I started thinking about apps like Afterpay, Klarna, I think another one's called like a firm or something. And I was like, should I offer that as an option on my website? But then I started to feel weird about it because I was like, are those apps like just super predatory? Like, are they basically like the worst of what credit cards do or something? It seems like there's a lot to unpack there. And I feel like an episode on that or even just a little mini sewed, which might be three hours long <laughs> for you. Um, could be really interesting. Um, you know, I still haven't decided whether I'm going to offer that as an option. I'll probably ask my um, followers, but just thought it would be something really interesting to look into. I always find it really weird when I see it on sites like, you know, like more fast fashion brands, and it's like this $39 sweater, you can pay like, you know, $10 a month or something. And it's like, if you can't, I don't know, I, I'm not to be judgmental, but like, it does feel predatory to have someone have to break down their payments that much. It's like, I just don't want people to be paying for things that, um, that they really can't afford. And it, it feels like that could be what the type of people that it's going after. And, and that really makes me nervous. So anyways, you know, that's for you to dig into. So good luck. Thanks, Amanda. Bye. So I'm so glad that Danny called me about this because it's been on my mind a lot lately. I've noticed more and more indie brands are accepting Klarna or Afterpay as a payment plan, and it kind of concerns me. These services are called Buy Now, Pay Later, or BNPL, and they're exactly what they sound like. Get the item now, pay for it in usually four installments. But just to be clear... Any BNPL is actually offering debt to you, but in this case, it seems to be interest-free. Well, sort of. We'll get into that. So how do they make their money? 
Well, the retailer actually pays the BNPL for offering the service. So Afterpay or Klarna, see also Affirm and Sezzle, they get a portion of the sale. Now, if you pay everything off on time, then that's all the service makes off of you. But if you miss a payment, well, Afterpay charges you $8 for each payment made one day late and an additional $8 for every week that the payment is further delayed, up to 25% of the total purchase price. Nearly 25% of Afterpay's revenue between June 2017 and June 2018 was derived from those consumer fees, about $28 million. So Afterpay was first established in Australia in 2014, and it now has a market cap of over $3 billion Australian, or $2.2 billion US. It's a massive company, and it's traded on the Australian Stock Exchange. Afterpay made its debut in the United States in 2018 with Urban Outfitters. And after launching, Urban Outfitters had record sales for that quarter, and analysts credit the addition of Afterpay. So it's definitely beneficial for retailers. The most popular stores for Afterpay payments, according to the company, and you can see this all on their website, are all low to moderately priced fashion and cosmetic brands. So Urban Outfitters and its sister brands, Anthropology and Free People, Nasty Gal, Dolls Kill, Third Love, Ulta, Forever 21, Boohoo, and Shein. I mean, it's all clothes. Most of it's inexpensive. Okay, so we know it benefits retailers by driving sales. But here's where I start to get torn about all of it. Because on one hand, I like the idea of young people getting access to credit in a mostly non-predatory way. But it turns out that most of these BNPL services don't positively impact your credit at all, but will negatively impact your credit if you miss payments or apply for too many of these services. Some of these programs perform hard credit checks, which do affect your credit rating, and they also report missed payments to credit bureaus, and both of those things can affect your score. So that could make buying a car or a house just a little bit more difficult, or a lot, depending how, on how often you're using these services and how it's going. And, I mean, let's get down to it, they're kind of encouraging people to buy more stuff, to live outside their means, to overconsume. And that's both dangerous and irresponsible. I mean, think back to the list of retailers I just threw out like a minute ago. All of them are fast fashion, and for the most part, they're essentially a throwaway product. And for some of those brands, I would question that the product would even hold up long enough to be paid off. That's really dark. So you might not be surprised to hear that these BNPL services are more popular than ever during the pandemic. According to a representative for Klarna, about 987,000 users signed up for the service between March and July, which was a growth rate of nearly 200% year over year. Afterpay gained more than 1 million customers between March and May, according to its chief revenue officer. Once again, it seems kind of crazy, in my opinion, to be encouraging people to go into debt during one of the worst recessions ever during a pandemic with so much uncertainty about the future and primarily, you know, on fast fashion and other disposable items. It's really playing into this idea that I totally hate of retail therapy. Like, sure, 
things are terrible, so why don't you just buy something to make yourself feel better? Well, that's not how it really works. (laughs) Retail therapy is not actual therapy. And the dopamine high of buying something is fleeting at best. Some critics call out something that I hadn't even noticed at first, which is these buy now, pay later services don't extend to more necessary products like food, utilities, and shelter. And I think that tells you a lot about this industry, right? Okay, so I mentioned that Afterpay began in Australia, where it's been around for several more years than it has been here in the United States. Well, in Australia, consumers are increasingly running into trouble with their BNPL purchases. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission reported that one in six Afterpay customers had overdrawn their bank account or borrowed more money to make their payments. The National Debt Hotline is reportedly receiving a ton of calls, ever-growing, from Afterpay customers struggling to balance their mounting shopping debts. That's really scary. Apparently, Afterpay was built within a legal loophole Basically, without set fees or interest, Afterpay and all the other services like that fall outside the legal definition of a loan product. So it's really challenging for regulators to, well, regulate their services so they can kind of do whatever they want. So I was thinking a lot about, like, should Danny use this? Should my other friends with small businesses use this? I was doing a lot of reading and thinking about it. Designer Tuesday Bassin, who we've talked about on the show before, totally respect her. She's super cool. She does cool stuff. She offers Afterpay, and her take on it is really interesting. This is what she said. We're always searching for ways to make our clothes more accessible to everyone. We chose Afterpay as an option to help accommodate our customers that needed gradual payments. I, of course, have concerns about any credit card or layaway program, but ultimately feel that giving customers the agency to make a choice is more important than imposing restrictions on them based on my own feelings about credit cards or late fees. And her idea here was that the increased sales that would result from Afterpay would allow her to leverage better costing, theoretically allowing her to decrease prices for customers, which I also get. Like, this is just such a tough, it's such a tough question to answer. I see what Tuesday's saying. I also feel anxious. It's a tough decision to say whether or not Danny or any of the other small businesses out there should use it. Or My feelings are kind of all over the place. I will say this. Now that I understand more about how it works, my guess is that big retailers will launch their own version of buy now, pay later, because they're going to want to hold on to that cut of each purchase that they're currently giving to the existing services. I mean, think about all the store credit cards out there. Like, Does anyone need an Ulta credit card, a Gap card? This was another way that retailers cashed in on the customer need to have credit. Retailers saw that customers were often paying with credit cards and that the retailers themselves often paid fees on each credit card transaction, you know, to the credit card company. And they thought to themselves, how do we cut out those fees and maybe make a piece of the interest in annual fee pie? And so a lot of stores got into the store credit card business. The industry is always looking for new ways to make a dime. 
And I'm concerned that these services may become more and more predatory as the market becomes more and more saturated and therefore more and more competitive. I feel especially concerned because these services seem to specifically target younger people who may not have as much financial education. I mean, I didn't know about anything financial until I was like 30. And I can't imagine the sort of trouble I would have gotten into with Afterpay if it was around when I was 18 or 19. So I would say, look for this kind of service to spread like wildfire, but also be very wary and always, I mean, always read the fine print. Thanks for calling, Danny. You made my day. If you, the rest of you who aren't Danny, but also Danny, if you have a question or maybe an opinion on these buy now, pay later services or really anything else you want to say, please call the Close Horse Hotline. It's kind of my favorite thing right now, and I get really excited when I get a notification that there's a message. That phone number is 717-925-7417. And don't forget to leave your email or your phone number or some way that I can reach you for any follow-up questions that I have. Call me. I wanted to take a moment to talk about one of Clothes Horse's Pegasus sponsors, Late to the Party. You might recognize this brand because Jenny, the designer and founder of LTTP, was a guest on some previous episodes where we talked about Fabric Waste, Nellie Olson, Unsolved Mysteries, thrift shopping, all kinds of really fun things. I'm so sick of buying clothes that aren't made well and fall apart after a few wears, and I'm constantly frustrated with this cycle. You know, buy a shirt, wear it three times, wash it once, and boom, it completely falls apart. Or I'd buy a dress on sale without actually loving how it looked on me, and then it'd be sitting in my closet for years. I know that that experience is familiar to you too. It took me a minute, a lot of minutes, to realize that buying cheap pieces was never worth the savings. With each new purchase, I was ultimately left feeling bummed out, disappointed, and really unsatisfied. It's such a waste of our hard-earned money, let alone terrible for the environment, right? Well, Jenny was feeling all of these same feelings. Basically like, hey, fuck fast fashion, something has to change. So she made a vow to do something about it. And she did something pretty major. She started Late to the Party, a slow fashion brand that focuses on modern, easy-to-wear silhouettes made from unique vintage, salvaged, and thrifted fabrics. Investing in a Late to the Party piece will not only have people asking you, where did you get that? But when you wear their jackets, you can feel the quality. Not only will you look dope as hell in a truly unique piece, but you'll know that you're wearing something that was ethically made with care in Brooklyn, New York by Jenny. No more buying cheap clothes that leave you disappointed. It's time to invest in pieces that truly feel like you and will last for years to come. You can learn more about Jenny's process and see the rotating selection of incredible unique statement pieces at shoplatetotheparty.com. And Close Horse listeners get a special offer just for being rad. Use code CLOSEHORSE to get 10% off your first order. Once again, that's code CLOSEHORSE to get 10% off your first order at shoplatetotheparty.com. I'll also share that code in the show notes. 
And be sure to check out the brand on Instagram at late to the party people. Thank you so much for your support, Jenny. Deanne Brady Stidham turned 60 in January 2019. She marked the occasion with a lavish masquerade ball at the Mission Inn and Spa in Riverside, California. And the Mission Inn is nice. It's a Mission Revival-style landmark, and it's hosted U.S. presidents, Hollywood stars, really just all of the best and brightest, including Amelia Earhart, Helen Keller, and Albert Einstein. So what a place to have your 60th birthday ball. Social media posts depicted guests in elaborate jeweled and feathered masks frolicking in the courtyard while acrobats spun overhead. Deanne herself was wearing a shawl dripping in gold beads, a delicate silver mask, and matching facial art. The birthday cake, I know you want to know about that. I mean, I, it was my first question. <laughs> was deep pink covered with a carnival mask of its own and a sparkling topper that read 60. The word, not the number. (laughs) That's important because it sounds fancier, right? And her children and their spouses put on a seven-minute dance routine, which, uh, oh my God, I need to see this, that included songs by Elton John, ABBA, Ace of Bass. At one point... Deanne even got up to join her family when 50 Cent's Into Club came on. Don't you want to see a video of this? On Instagram, the celebration continued. LuLaRoe fashion consultants posted photos of themselves wearing red, which is Deanne's favorite color, marked with the hashtag LLR Birthday Squad and LLR Squad Life, one post said. On Sunday, we wear red to honor the queen of LuLaRoe. On January 28th, the company posted a birthday message to its founder on Instagram. Each and every day, you strive to make everyone feel loved and appreciated. Three days earlier, the Washington State Attorney General filed a lawsuit against LuLaRoe, alleging that the MLM, multi-level marketing company, was actually an illegal pyramid scheme. Dum-dum-dum. It's the moment you've been waiting for, right? I need to read some direct quotes from the lawsuit because, I mean, they go for the jugular. Defendants market the LuLaRoe MLM as a transformational, empowering opportunity to achieve dreams and achieve financial freedom while providing a flexible and part-time alternative to traditional employment. In reality, LuLaRoe's pyramid scheme business model and compensation plan and its corresponding marketing activities dictated that during any particular time, a majority of Washington consultants lost money. And If you've been listening, you know this too, right? It's not a part-time job. It's not highly profitable. I'm not sure how many dreams were actually achieved, right? The state was demanding that the court rule to stop LuLaRoe, any of their uplines, and the Stidhams from continuing with most of their business practices in the state of Washington because almost all of it was kind of rotten at this point. Furthermore, they wanted restitution for any sellers— a.k.a. the fashion consultants, who had lost money due to the deceptive nature of the business. And as we know right now, that would be a vast majority of the people who agreed to sell for LuLaRoe. The suit alleged that not only had LuLaRoe been inventory loading, or also known as channel stuffing, by forcing large monthly reorders on sellers, 
more inventory than they ever could possibly sell. They'd also been lying in their yearly income disclosures for all of the sellers. Basically, on the site, every year, they're kind of required by law to show how much money every single person involved made. And in fact, they were lying. And for the year that the suit was filed, they never even posted anything. At that point, so we're, we're here, it's 2019, right? There was less than 2,000 active LuLaRoe consultants in Washington, down from a peak of 3,500. So, I mean, that's a huge drop, right? Most Washington consultants who had been interviewed for the case reported less than $10,000 in total profits all time from their LuLaRoe business. And nearly one third of consultants reported losses, which we know is the name of the game here. People are not making a lot of money. This is like a recurring theme here. People are getting into credit card debt. They're spending so much money on inventory and not seeing much of a return on that investment. The suit also said that despite all of this stuff going on, Deanne had said to a group of fashion consultants, I mean, I could blow your mind away by telling you that we have over 100 people that make a lot of money, like between $50,000 to $500,000 a month. And I'm not lying. I mean, I just want you to know that if you're making $500,000 a month off of selling leggings, you're making $6 million a year selling LuLaRoe leggings. That's preposterous. I would assume that the only people who are making that kind of money would be Deanne and Mark. She's so boldly lying here. So that was 2019. Let's go back to 2017 when shit started to get really crazy. So just as a reminder from our last episode, a few major things happened in early 2017. First, customers and sellers both began to file lawsuits against LuLaRoe, Deanne, and Mark, saying that the company knowingly sold low-quality products that ripped like, quote, wet toilet paper. There were also allegations of moldy merchandise making its way to the sellers, even making its way to customers. And when sellers tried to get a refund, they were given a runaround and they were generally discouraged from trying to get a refund by their uplines. At a seminar designed to motivate the sellers that spring, when asked about the quality issues and the lack of newness inventory, Mark said, no, you're stale. Your customers are stale. Get out there and find new customers. If you bring a new customer in, then your inventory isn't stale. The problem is you try to sell to the same group of people day after day after day. You go down there and go head to head with the negativity. You cannot wrestle with the pig without getting a little mud on you. Don't wrestle with the pigs. Ignore them. You're probably not surprised to hear that customers did not like hearing themselves compared to pigs. <laughs> and before I forget... Another lawsuit was filed around that same time that claimed that customers were being charged illegal sales tax in states that do not have sales tax on clothing, which is mega illegal. LuLaRoe promised to address the tax issue with an updated sales portal. I don't know if that happened or not, because as you probably guessed, so much other stuff is about to go down. So that was one thing that happened in 2017. Well, I guess that's two now. We're saying, okay, one, they got the lawsuit about the quality issues. Next, they have this lawsuit with the tax. Next, the bonus structure for upline fashion consultants changed. Previously, they would receive 5% of whatever their downline bought to sell. The policy changed to 5% of what their downline's 
actually sold to customers. And this was a huge gut punch for most sellers who saw their income drop by at least 75%. And I have some examples of those losses and the repercussions. One seller made $15,000 off of her LuLaRoe business in 2015. Not a ton, but it's like a nice little side income, right? I'd be curious to know how many hours a week she was working. Her profits dropped to four hundred dollars in 2016 and zero in 2017 the year that all these changes were made she had several thousand dollars in credit card debt more than thirty thousand dollars in student loan debt and still seven thousand dollars worth of LuLaRoe inventory floating around her house how do I know this because she filed for bankruptcy and this is part of the public record here's another one in 2016, one seller reported that she made $61,000 from her LuLaRoe business. Now that is a lot, right? But from January to July of 2017, once again, this year where all these policies changed, she had made only a little bit more than $10,000 from her business, less than half what she had made midway through the year before. And her average net income in 2017 from LuLaRoe was $184.39 each month. She was spending just as much in some months, if not more, on operating expenses for her business. For example, in May 2017, she earned about $2,000, but spent almost $3,000 to keep her business afloat. She still owned $8,000 worth of LuLaRoe inventory, and her $85 thousand dollars in debt included thousands on multiple credit cards and almost one thousand dollars owed to her paypal merchant account i don't even know how that happens she also declared bankruptcy in fact there were a lot of LuLaRoe bankruptcies in 2017 at least 70 but probably many many more and you can see how this would happen because it was kind of a perfect storm increasing credit card debt from buying inventory then only about a third of that inventory would actually ever sell. And then, you know, that reduced bonus structure was like the final nail in the coffin. So that was another thing that happened in 2017. By the way, we're still recapping what we talked about in the last episode, but these are all really important. So next, LuLaRoe changed its policy from a 100% refund on unsold inventory, which to be fair, was very hard to get and would often take a very long time, but the policy existed. Well, they changed it from 100% to 90%. And that doesn't sound like a huge shift, but this was devastating for women who were sitting on eight, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 worth of inventory, which seemed to be a very common situation. Even those that filed for the 90% refund weren't getting it. So they were on the brink of bankruptcy just because of this. LuLaRoe was deciding randomly and without any real clarification that certain items were non-refundable. And even in 2019, close to two years after this change in policy was enacted, sellers were still waiting for their refunds, worrying that the company would go bankrupt before they could get their money. Once again, most of these women had huge amounts of credit card debt that were really just waiting to be paid off by this refund. Meanwhile, 
Deanne was quite proudly on Instagram, traveling around the world in her private jet, buying Mercedes and designer handbags for her favorite salespeople, even going on multiple LuLaRoe cruises with Mark. And speaking of LuLaRoe cruises, well, remember Katie from our last episode? Well, she finally got to go on one of those cruises in 2017. In order to cruise qualify, as the consultants called it, they needed to sell more than $12,000 in inventory per month for at least four months. So $48,000 worth of leggings, which is a lot of leggings. Like we're talking some major hustling here. Katie qualified for an all-expenses-paid seven-day trip to four Caribbean countries aboard the Carnival Splendor. But just want to add this, the consultants all had to pay their own airfare to get there. So it wasn't totally a free trip. Well, Katie had a terrible time. She was ostracized for not wearing enough LuLaRoe on the cruise, for not attending enough seminars and events, and just pretty much relaxing and hanging out with her husband. I mean, she thought she was on vacation. And you know what? She hadn't been having a very good time with the company for a while. She hadn't been getting good inventory in any of her boxes, even though she was constantly being promised that it was coming. She was just sitting on more and more unsold stuff that she had paid for. She said, I often compared it to a cycle of abuse, especially with the owners. The launch would go bad. They kind of placed the blame on us and we'd all be really, really mad and upset with them. And then Mark would come on and apologize and give this whole teary-eyed speech about how sorry he was, how he did it wrong, and everybody would be like, oh, that made me cry. It's so good that they care so much about us. And then the next month, he'd turn around and do the same thing. And the reality was, Katie was broke. Since the shift in the bonus structure, she was making little to no money while still racking up tons of credit card debt on the constant new inventory boxes that never yielded any sales. It took a toll on her mental health. She was depressed, angry, guilty. I mean, I understand this feeling. I'm sure you do too. Years ago, I worked for a brand that was supposed to be really feminist, really empowering to women, really advocating for anyone who's being overlooked or oppressed by society, or at least that's what their public image was. And these are all things that really matter to me. I felt like I was really part of a mission of retail that did good for the world. But behind the scenes, we were just making shitty fast fashion, selling it at an inflated price, not giving a fuck about dressing people of all sizes. We just seemed to want to care about the size smalls and maybe the mediums out there. The leadership was toxic narcissistic, had no empathy. There was so much bullying and emotional abuse. The leaders really didn't believe anything we were supposed to stand for. They were just using it as a marketing story. And it kind of broke me. I felt stuck there because my family relied on me and my income. But going to work every day made me feel sick, sicker with each passing week. I reached a point where I began fantasizing about taking out a huge life insurance policy and then killing myself so that my family could still be cared for, but I wouldn't have to work for this terrible company anymore. And it feels crazy to be saying that out loud because I've only told maybe like two people that that's what was going on with me, kind of disappeared from my friend's circle because I didn't want to talk about it with them. It took me months and months to finally admit it to Dustin, my husband. It was 
It was bad. It was a really bad time. Fortunately, I left the company before I could go that far. And the day I left, I felt like a new person. And also fortunately for me, I wasn't in debt with thousands of dollars worth of that company's inventory sitting in my dining room. So when I think about Katie and where she would have been at this point, I have so, so much empathy for her. You probably do too. We've all had a job that has just fucking killed us, right? When she finally decided to get out, it took Katie seven or eight months to get rid of all of her inventory. Eventually, she just started selling clothes for $1 to $3 a piece, and she gave a lot of it away for free. She just wanted it out of there. She said, I just felt that people were buying the stuff that was disgusting to me, knowing how horrible the company was. I just felt awful. At the end of 2018, Katie decided to cash out her 401k to pay off her debt from LuLaRoe, which was $50,000 out of her 401k. Meanwhile, Mark was bragging very publicly about possibly buying another Wyoming ranch near his current one, which I want to say has a value of $9 million, but maybe it's seven. He was going to buy another one just to get exclusive access to a river. That is so tone deaf. Around the time Katie was deciding to quit LuLaRoe in late 2017, several sellers in California filed a federal suit claiming that LuLaRoe was, guess what, a pyramid scheme. And they were seeking $1 billion in damages. Among the allegations were that LuLaRoe duped people into becoming non-employee distributors by falsely claiming that they could earn full-time pay for part-time work, which... If you're not picking up on, it's just not a thing that happens. (laughs) Here's what the lawsuit said. Consultants are instructed to keep around $20,000 worth of inventory on hand at all times. These incentives mean new consultants at the bottom of the pyramid and in oversaturated markets are aggressively pressured to continue purchasing wholesale inventory, even when the inventory they have is not selling, is unlikely to sell, or is piling up in the garage. That's that's the story right there. LuLaRoe is just destroying these women's lives. Like their financial future is so, I mean, sorry to drop the F-bomb again, so fucked up, right? Well, LuLaRoe was also having money problems of its own at this point. After they changed their bonus policy, They saw a mass exodus from the company. Within three months, sales dropped approximately $250 million to only, and this is still a lot of money, around $100 million in August of 2017. And the consultants were just leaving so fast. They started 2017 with about 50,000 consultants, and it dropped to 35,000 just a year later. And I also want to say that there's a lot of... I guess I want to say here that there's a lack of transparency about how many people they ever had selling, had selling at any point, and have selling now because LuLaRoe skirts that subject anytime the press asks them. So anyway, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the very nature of retail is this. When your sales drop, you're left with excess inventory, right? You bought everything that you bought with the expectation that you would hit this certain sales number. You missed it. Now you've got all this stuff you didn't sell. Another thing that happens 
is you start to run low on cash flow because you don't have enough money coming in from sales to pay for the new inventory. A lot of retailers and brands see this kind of situation developing. I mean, in fact, they have planners whose sole job is to maintain that balance between sales and inventory. These planners will be looking at this every day they are at work and they will see this problem developing very, very early on, and they will pull back on new orders to prevent this sort of catastrophe. It's like an avalanche of inventory. They may even ask their buyers to cancel some orders. I mean, I've been there, but LuLaRoe didn't do that. And that speaks to their mixture of hubris, delusion, and most importantly, inexperience. Instead, they decided to stop paying their supplier. Oh, And yeah, it's also important to mention that from 2016 on, they only had one company making almost all of their stuff. One company. And that is crazy. Usually, you'd want to have multiple suppliers in case something fell apart with one or you needed better pricing, better terms. I mean, there are tons of reasons why you would want to diversify here. There's no strategic win with only one supplier. You put yourself in a position where they know that you need them. So they can kind of control the terms around pricing, delivery, anything. You have no leverage at all. Once again, this is just another show of that lack of experience and business sense within the company. Because, and I may say this with a little bit of disgust because I've been hearing this my entire career, a lot of people think that just Anyone off the street can design, produce, and buy product. And guess what? (laughs) That's just not true. It's a super skilled job that requires a lot of real experience to pull off. It's not just saying, that's cute, that's cute, that's really cute, buy 2,000 of each. There's a lot of math. There's a lot of critical thinking. There's a lot of finesse. There's a lot of understanding of human nature negotiations, understanding of legal rights. I mean, it's, it's so much. You don't learn it in college. You learn it on the job. And it takes a long time to get there. So anyway, LuLaRoe had only one supplier, which I can't say that without laughing because it's so absurd. And this supplier was called My Dyer, also known as Providence Industries. By the summer of 2017, LuLaRoe just could not pay its bill. So My Dyer and LuLaRoe came to an agreement to partly solve the problem. Are you ready? Because this is disgusting. My Dyer destroyed more than $11 million worth of LuLaRoe inventory. And they agreed to absolve some of the debt. Both of these things are huge, okay? By my very rough back of the napkin math, which pretends that all of this inventory was leggings and that LuLaRoe was paying $6 a piece for them. I actually think it was probably lower than that, but let's, let's pretend six. That's more than 1.8 million pairs of leggings that were destroyed, probably by burning, going to the landfill, something like that. An outgoing executive said, quote, Mark Stidham made several policy decisions close together in time that drastically hurt LuLaRoe's finances without fully analyzing the end consequences of his decisions. 
once again, just a whole bunch of inexperience, but too much hubris to ask for help. Well, bad press about LuLaRoe was everywhere by the end of 2017. More and more lawsuits were popping up. More and more bad stories from sellers were filling the internet. And the business was just getting worse. So Mark and Deanne decided to appear on CBS this morning. The basic theme of the interview was, LuLaRoe is great, and everyone who disagrees is a hater. Side note, could we just eliminate hater from our vocabulary? Because something I've noticed, Donald Trump likes to use this term a lot, Danielle Bernstein, we wore what, who, you know, steals ideas from every small business out there. She has to talk about the haters all the time. Clearly, we've got Mark and Deanne here throwing the word hater out in conversation constantly. It seems as if just going to just some speculation here. Hater is a term used by people who are doing bad things and don't want to be held accountable or be honest about what's going on. Anyway, here's what Deanne said on the show. I often say LuLaRoe works for you. You don't work for LuLaRoe. That means you get to decide on your time and you get to decide what works best for you. You get the product, you put it before people and you sell it and you have money. And that's the simplicity of this business. And that's as easy as it can be. When asked about the suits claiming that LuLaRoe was a pyramid scheme, Mark answered, what that is, is an uneducated opinion. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to laugh, but they haven't looked at who we are because we sell product through to a consumer and it's highly desirable product. This is not a pyramid scheme. He also went on to imply that other apparel brands and retailers were creating these cases, these lawsuits, to destroy LuLaRoe because they were, quote, a disruptor in the industry. I mean, once again, no accountability. Well, destroying all that inventory, literally more than a million pairs of leggings in 2017, didn't help that much because sales continued to plummet. And ultimately, my dyer filed suit in November 2018, suing LuLaRoe for $49 million in unpaid bills. According to the lawsuit, when executives at my dyer and oh, by the way, I forgot to add this, the owner of my dyer was supposedly one of Mark's best friends. They raced their stupidly expensive cars together. So they had a really close relationship, which maybe explains why in the previous year, the company was willing to destroy all that inventory and absolve some of the debt. But by this time in 2018, they were over it. When executives asked for payment, Mark allegedly said, look, guys, I'm not going to pay you guys a fucking dime unless a judge orders me to pay it. And Deanne and I will take our two to three hundred million dollars to the Bahamas and fuck everything. <laughs> I don't know if you remembered in the first episode, I mentioned that Mark has a real tendency to say things loudly that he shouldn't say out loud. <laughs> the suit also alleged that LuLaRoe was actually insolvent, meaning broke, and that the Stidhams were using a series of shell companies to hide money and assets from creditors. The case identified 17 limited liability companies that are tied to the Stidhams that were created between July and December 2017. And reporters dug up at least another dozen of these LLCs and shell companies. The suit claimed that the Stidhams have used all of these fake companies to purchase cars worth at least $2.7 million. We talked about those in the first episode. 
properties in excess of $7 million, private planes, and other assets. The suit also claimed that LuLaRoe owed more than a million dollars to UPS and several million dollars to another supplier, among other debts. So basically, the suit's saying LuLaRoe is out of money. They have so much debt. And Mark and Deanne are creating all these fake companies, these shell companies, to hide all of the assets and protect them from seizure in any sort of lawsuit effectively hiding all of these assets from their creditors, like MyDire, like UPS, like other companies they owed money to. It's not 100% illegal, but it kind of is. It's definitely unethical. Meanwhile, so this case, this case hits the internet. I mean, there's like nine gazillion articles about this. Obviously, the sellers were catching wind of it. LuLaRoe sent out an email to their sellers that said that the claims within the lawsuit, quote, falls into the category of salacious, untrue, inflated, and predatory claims targeted to strong-arm LuLaRoe into an unreasonable settlement of their unsubstantiated invoices and claims. Just another case of the haters coming after LuLaRoe, right? Meanwhile, a high-ranked consultant for the company said to the media under the condition of anonymity because she feared all kinds of repercussions and retaliation, They always advertise that they are a billion-dollar company. While that billion dollars in goods they've sold, people don't want it. They are trying to return it all right now. My Dyer alleged that LuLaRoe had been in serious financial trouble since 2017 when Mark made all of those crazy decisions, and My Dyer had also agreed to destroy all that inventory and write down their debts, right? That should have been a red flag to slow the fuck down. But, as I've mentioned, rather than trying to course correct by ordering less product, the company continued to order tens of millions of dollars in inventory that they did not need. They did this through 2018. My Dyer also claimed that rather than paying them, LuLaRoe had been using the proceeds from sales because they were still selling some stuff, right? They used that money to buy products from new suppliers and give bonuses slash wage increases to executives. None of that money went to my dyer. So again, I just want to say, allegedly, Mark and the owner of my dyer were like total BFFs. So if this feels like an ugly lawsuit, that's because it is. This guy ripped off his alleged BFF. So what's happening now? It's 2020. Well, basically... All of these cases are tied up in court and new cases have been filed in different states on behalf of the sellers, the customers. I can't even begin to pull together a list of all the cases. Everything has been slowed down due to the pandemic. And so they're all sort of just in a holding pattern, but there are so many lawsuits. In November, 2018, which as I'm working on this, and reading this aloud to you after I've written it all, I am laughing to myself because I'm starting to see that I'm going to tell you this next part, but there's something so Trumpy about LuLaRoe's behavior. I, I also, I'm going to bring up Danielle Bernstein again, because same thing. She's done all these weird counter lawsuits. Okay. So LuLaRoe countersued my dyer for $1 billion, which 
just want to point out is significantly more than I want to say the $49 million my dyer was asking for. They accused the company of engaging in a systemic years-long scheme to defraud LuLaRoe by under-delivering and overcharging. A spokesperson for LuLaRoe claims that it paid MyDyer tens of millions of dollars for products that were ordered but never delivered, adding, quote, you should know that the company is suing MyDyer for substantially more money than MyDyer is suing LuLaRoe. Just want to remind you again, allegedly mark BFFs with the owner of MyDyer. Like, what is going on here? Why is everyone so terrible? Last October, so in 2019, LuLaRoe fired all 167 employees at its Corona warehouse in California, claiming it was moving all production to its distribution center in South Carolina. In November, it announced that it was dropping its buy-in for new sellers to $499, which does seem like a very desperate bid to bring in more consultants. Remember, in the past, it had been $5,000 quite a difference between that and $500. The company, as I mentioned, is completely unwilling to say how many consultants they currently have, but they will say that overall they have at some point had 100,000, which means nothing. Deanne's Instagram is now private and I'm really sad about it, but from what I hear, she's still gramming all the time and living a life of luxury even occasionally showing off new LuLaRoe products that are coming soon. Mark is still racing luxury cars. The company itself may or may not still exist. Like I said, there's not a lot of transparency out there about whether or not these leggings are still being sold. But it definitely won't be around by the time all of these lawsuits are settled. I mean, it's it's going to end soon. And perhaps... The only sliver of a happy ending that I can think of here is that new communities have popped up all over social media and IRL, groups of former LuLaRoe fashion consultants who are there to support one another in their grief, their anger, their financial disarray. It's funny how we always manage to come together, even in the darkest times. And I feel like that's what's happening with this community that we're building right now. I feel lucky that we're all getting to meet one another. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. And please, don't forget to take the Close Horse Buy Better Holiday Pledge. You'll find more details about it on Instagram. Please share it with your friends and family and let them know what you're doing this year when it comes to buying gifts. I also just wanted to take a moment to talk about the holidays. I love holidays, literally all of them. Don't get me started on Halloween. I even like Valentine's Day. So I've been going through all the stages of denial and despair about them this year. You know, like all of you, I won't see my family and friends. My daughter Dylan just moved into her own apartment like mm -hmm, a month and a half ago. And now I don't even get to see her for the holidays because she's not part of our household. I know I'm posting about better holiday shopping habits and you're seeing a lot of gift guides out there, but I'm here to tell you something. You don't have to give gifts this year. I'm giving almost no gifts 
And what I am giving is going to be thrifted or homemade. And that's because I haven't worked in almost eight months. My unemployment, which is only 20% of my previous income, it runs out two days after Christmas, unless there's a new COVID stimulus. And I'm super afraid of what's going to happen to me in the new year. I've been turned down for every job I've applied for, even the most seasonal part-time retail jobs that would totally be dangerous for me because I have an autoimmune disease. I've even been turned down by them. Even Instacart said that they didn't believe I would make a long-term commitment. So yeah, I've been feeling stressed about the holidays. And I'm telling you all of this, not because I want your sympathy, but because I want you to know that I know and see that a lot of you are also worrying about money and your future right now. A lot of you have lost your jobs, you're worrying about your small business, or you've even had to move home with your parents. I feel like what we see out there in the world right now is that there's not a lot of people like us, people like you being seen by the media, by social media, because this time of year is all about consumerism, right? So all of that attention is being focused on the people who do have money. And I will say this, there are plenty of people who are doing just fine right now. If I guess I don't know how much economic news y'all like to read, but basically economists are saying that we're in the midst of a K-shaped recovery, which means like K has some one line that goes up. That's the people who have money right now. They're doing better than ever possibly because they're saving money because they can't travel or spend, go out to dinner, you know? The other is the the line that points down, right? And that's where a lot of other people are. And it's a pretty even split, shockingly. I see all of you and I know that you're struggling and maybe you've struggled like this in the past. I know I have. It's not unique to me, but that doesn't mean it's not hard. I know it seems embarrassing, but there is no shame in not having money. Like, I want you to imagine that I said that to you in all caps without yelling at you. Be honest with the people in your lives. Tell them you aren't doing gifts this year or that you're doing them in a different way. There are so many ways to show your love for someone that costs little to no money, whether it's like writing a nice letter, drawing a picture, making a collage, put together little coupons for things like I'll shovel your snow, I'll watch your cat for a week. I mean, these gifts are way more valuable than any gift card or tchotchke you're going to buy someone. Those are the things that you really remember and appreciate down the road, not some like scented candle. Things are going to be different this year. And my hope is that, and maybe this is just me being too optimistic, too naive. I don't know. My hope is that it will help us realize what we really need to be happy. And then we can cut out all of the extra waste and excess for next year and the year after that. This could be a turning point in how we treat the holidays and gifts and all of that stuff for the rest of time. If you're part of that pointing up line coming off of the K and you do have money, please, please support small businesses, buy local, buy secondhand, be cognizant of your waste. We'll be unpacking that all on coming episodes and on Instagram. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love seeing your shares and hearing your encouragement and suggestions, hot tips, answering your questions. 
You're all the best. And hearing from you makes me so happy. By the way, I said this in previous episodes, I'm going to say it again. If you ever want me to share a source for statistics or other information that I present here or on the gram, just get in touch. I have the world's biggest bookmarks folder and I'm happy to give you more information. While I'm not a journalist, I'm really committed to providing you with accurate, true facts and information. I take that very, very seriously. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse? Well, drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or, you know, DM me via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. Also, I'm here to answer your questions. Please hit me up. I love a research project, as you can tell. So please don't hold back. If you would like to meet some other Clothes Horse listeners, join the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group, and I'll share a link to that in the show notes. It's been kind of weird to get people into the group because the group function on Facebook is really confusing, so just be patient. And if you have trouble getting into the group, drop me a message on Instagram or email or call the Clothes Horse hotline. We'll get it fixed right away. And speaking of which, don't forget the Clothes Horse Hotline. The phone number is 717-925-7417. Give me a call, even if you just want to say hi or tell me something random. If you know someone who is involved in an MLM or maybe you've bought something yourself, I want to hear your stories. So please call me. And don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim, the same one who said I should start asking you to save our posts on Instagram. We talk about trends, taste, our obsessions, weird stuff. (laughs) This week, we're talking all about the trend of blanding and how that relates to the generic products of the 70s. It's educational and fun. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) Bye.